0: This is Real Good by U.S. Bank, a podcast about helpers.
1: Black culture is American culture and the barbershop after the Civil War, this was one of the first ways for Black men to be entrepreneurs because white men didn't do service work, you know? And so building on that, that power center, it can't be co-opted. The Black barbershop, our country club, can never be gentrified or taken over. It's it's more of a like a welcoming situation where it's, it's a museum of culture where for me now, it's like as, as we move forward, how do we then begin to make this a, a, a open celebration
0: I'm Faith Saley. Welcome back to another season of Real Good. This show started out because we had a desire to find the bright lights in a dark time, to give the mic to people doing important work for underrepresented communities at the outset of the COVID-19 pandemic. What we saw was that the problems the folks on the ground were working to solve weren't the results of COVID. They were deep-seated, intergenerational, and intersectional issues that were merely being highlighted by the virus's impact. So we broadened our scope to find people who were working to change the way the world worked for disadvantaged communities, to speak to the people leading the way toward a more equitable future. Let's hear their stories. This week, our guest is multi-hyphenate entrepreneur Houston White. He's a barber, coffee shop owner, clothing designer, charity golf tournament founder, and much more. To quote Houston, black culture is American culture. Everything from the clothes we wear to the food we eat and the music we have in our headphones is informed by black culture. But the communities creating that culture are often exploited. They aren't celebrated the way the things they make are. When outside capital is invested in these communities, it can be misguided or not enough to get the job done. That's why people like Houston White are trying to build Build up community from within. I want to invite both of you right now, our special guest today, Houston White. I want you both to tell me your favorite Jay Z lyric. And and here's the reason why I know about you, Greg, from doing a little research that Jay Z is your favorite artist. Yes. And, And Houston, I see that you had a listening party and you used lyrics from the Jay Z album Reasonable Doubt.
2: Mm, um, yeah.
0: And so I want to I want to know from from both of you what what's your, what's your most quotable Jay Z lyric what what resonates with you most
1: uh, I'll take a stab at this I I did do a uh, a mastermind session uh, summer 2019 and it was titled Reasonable Doubt and you know it was just a conversation that we had I mean Jay Z is is I think Greg and I agree on this both of our favorite um, rap yeah. artists at least for sure. And one of our favorite artists. But for me, something that I've been noodling on um, lately is this idea. I'm not a businessman. You know, I'm literally a business man. And it (laughs) it, it, because folks always ask, what do you do? Right. Like, what do you do? Mm. And that's a tough question for me to answer because I do a lot of stuff. And so I just had to start saying I'm a business. (laughs) I am a business. I have so many different things. And just like Jay-Z a kid from urban America who's figured out his way, uh, kind of, I mean, I don't know if he ever really figured out, but, um, at least I'm feeling good about where I'm headed and this idea, I'm just vertically integrated. That's what I'm rocking
2: with right now.
0: What about you, Greg?
2: This is like asking me to to say what's my favorite child, but, um, I, I I probably will surprise some people and say my favorite, um, Jay-Z lyric is actually from my favorite Jay-Z album, and most people's favorite album from jay Z's Reasonable Doubt. Mine happens to be the Black Album. And the first line of my favorite song on that album is from a public service announcement where he says, um, allow me to reintroduce myself. And the reason that line had always resonated with me is because I can't even begin to tell you how many times people have counted me out or doubted the fact that you know, I could change industries going from the industry I was in and having, you know, whatever success and then coming into a new industry and being able to do it again. Like I've, I felt like I almost had to reinvent and reintroduce myself to people and um, reintroduce people to my gifts. And so for me, it's um, it's the opening line from public service announcement on the Black Album. Mm-hmm. Oh.
0: And when it comes that's a, that's a wonderful connection to you, Houston, because I, I feel like what I know of your story coming from the 11-year-old who decided he could <laughs> cut kids' hair <laughs> to the 16-year-old who made a lot of money selling T-shirts to the business, comma, man that you are now, um, I, I imagine there's a lot of reinvention in that, Yeah.
1: Yeah, there is a lot of reinvention in that. I I um I was honored to give a talk last week at the Walker Art Center, and you know the question was how does how has art and culture uh, influenced your work? Um, and my talk was just that art is a mirror of society, and I grew up in a society that basically had a whole bunch of Black and Brown people from New York City trying to figure out how to create this new thing, right? The the end of a disco era, but the beginning of not yet what is this gonna be? That is now the most influential um, force in the world. And that is hip-hop, right? That's how I came up with a bunch of entrepreneurial creatives. Um and I was just fiercely driven to to do that as well in these different different ways. I mean, you know, I mean who taught LeBron James how to shoot a basketball. You know what I mean? Who taught Michael Jackson how to entertain a crowd at seven, eight years old. I mean, of course your gifts have to be honed, but there's an innate, um, ability that just comes from, um, what my ancestors and what my fathers and what the cats that were my, a little bit older than me were doing at that time. And so, um, yeah, that's what I've done for life, and it's just like it's just a part of the culture. Um, this drive to be fiercely independent.
0: Is it is it fair to call you audacious? Like, let's let's go way back. You 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 grew up in Minneapolis, right? Yeah. And you did really truly start a business at eleven, right?
1: Oh yeah, for real. Like yeah.
0: Tell us about that.
1: Well. <laughs> I mean, you know, coming from, so one of my favorite lines, uh, a common song, uh, my generation never understood working for the man and of being broke, I ain't a fan. And so this reality is that the generation that I came up in wanted to be fly. That was currency. Now we got social currency, but the currency of the day that I was coming up was really like, how did you show up? How did you look, right? How did you, you know, it's, it's that nonverbal communication of just how you show up somewhere, and people assume things about you right and so for me that was powerful um when you show up in an environment you might have no money in your pocket but you show up and you look fly people give you the benefit of the doubt Uh, and then you get opportunities that you otherwise wouldn't have gotten so for me that was like well okay a haircut that was like (laughs) that was like one of the most important things for a young Black male to have, especially when, you know, Bobby Brown was wearing the Gumby. I mean, these were specialized science. You had to have skills to do this kind of stuff. And so <laughs> if you could actually pull it off, well, now you could create a market. Um, And the better you got at it, you cornered the market and it produces a lot of money. And I also grew up in a, you know, in a, in a drug era where folks were risking their lives to get the money to get fly. And so barbering at a young age, allowed me to get the money to get fly, but not risk my life. And so, um, you know, it builds on itself, right? Like you, you you, can do the haircuts and then it's like, well, people like how you show up to school. Like, well, okay. And I've always been a hustler. So I'm gonna start making these shirts and selling them. And then you start selling out of those shirts. It just builds confidence, right? Like you just get more confident in your ability to kind of see around the corner. Because the the the, the greatest um you know, the greatest place to do a feasibility study and or just get feedback is just in the streets. It's either dope Mm. or it's whack. It's just that simple.
2: You know, and what's so important about that too is uh, looking fly and, you know, making sure that your, your sneakers was clean and your haircut was, was perfect. And the line was straight and everything was right. And the part was right. Like that was status. Yeah, that's status mm. in the community. The fly your sneakers, you know, the fresher your outfit. And when the sneakers match the outfit and the whole thing, like you had status, which was respect, which was dignity, you know, faith. Like we talk about that a lot on this program when we talk about, you know, the history of these communities and why entrepreneurship is so important in communities of color and the black community in particular. Um, it's that notion of dignity and status and self-determination like all of those things, which is why the barbershop was such an important and central part of, um, of the community is because where black men went to, to be men and to be respected because society didn't treat them as men, didn't treat yeah. them as full people. But in the barbershop, they could be a man and they could share problems and share their points of view. And so this notion of self-determination is a huge part of entrepreneurship and the barbershop concept in particular
0: is Is that why Houston, you have sort of called the culture you've created that's bigger than a barbershop? it's 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 a, it's a whole bunch of things, including mm-hmm. a cafe owner, a charity golf tournament organizer. But I've heard you uh, call it the black men's a Black Man's Country Club.
1: Yeah, it's it is our country club. It's the place where you can be sitting next to a Greg Cunningham that's in the C suite at U.S. Bank, and also sitting next to a black man that is unemployed. And at that particular moment in time, they're just peers, right? They're just two men trying to plug into a space that makes them feel a sense of dignity, a sense of belonging, and a, and a, and empowered. Quite frankly, you know um one of the reasons why i like to host we we put a board a board table in the middle of the barbershop um had a meeting there with greg and Reba and the leadership of u.s Bank. and what was so powerful about that is folks were just doing the normal thing right typically we hide things like this you know this is where you you gotta go in a back room to have a board meeting but i mean there Mm. was a a screen that said welcome us bank and we did a whole presentation right when everything was happening in the barbershop to so people could see it almost like an artistic installation of like what really happens at the highest level of business but we're just going to bring it right and normalize it um and folks are walking in like what's going you know and then my mom walked in <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah
2: funniest thing ever <laughs> true story <laughs> True story. And funny part, he so he looks at his mom, Faith, and says, "Mama, I made it. I'm meeting with the U.S. Bank." (laughs) Oh, it was such a surreal moment. Anyway, go ahead, Houston. That's gorgeous. Yeah, but but
1: but it's that kind of situation where you we really get to control like the things that happen. I mean, it's it's as black as it gets in America, and you know the the black culture is American culture. In the barbershop after the Civil War this was one of the first ways for black men to be entrepreneurs because white men didn't do service work, you know? And so Mm. building on that, you know, that, that, that power center, it can't be co-opted. The barbershop can never, the black barbershop, our country club can never be gentrified or, you know, taken over. It's, it's more of a, like a welcoming situation where it's, it's a museum of culture where for me now it's like, as, as we move forward, how do we then begin to make this a, a, a open celebration, a learning? Because then we can talk about things like race and 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 you know all these societal issues, but from a place where a black man in a barbershop feels like their voice is equal, whether they're in a in a, in a position of leadership at a big corporation or whether they're just somebody who is a thought leader of culture because they've been experiencing it. You know, and so it's a it's a great platform to to really do some amazing stuff, I think.
0: When when the murder of George Floyd happened in your city, did you have to shut down your barbershop?
1: Yeah, I did. Actually, um, we were shut down anyway because of the pandemic. Um, we, were, yeah. we It was a tough moment, you know, because barbershops were being burned. The barbershop that I used to work at on um, West Broadway was one of the barbershops that got burned down. One of my um, mentors in barbering, um, Jimmy Mills, his shop um, was completely destroyed during you know, some of the um, incidents that happened on Lake Street. He has a shop on Lake Street. And um, folks were scared because of the barbershop, particularly with the issues of folks coming from various parts of the city terrorizing Black business, that's one of the things that they were targeting. So um, on yeah. a couple of nights, a couple of fellows and myself, we guarded this place you know um and w- one, one of the cool things was the second night I decided like after after the second night um I don't want to risk someone's life trying to guard a barbershop you know and I made the decision mm-hmm. to take everybody off and it was actually my um white brothers and sisters that stepped up and guarded my shop for about a week because they weren't getting the same kind of uh, blowback, pushback, and you know, threats, if you will. And so it was really this moment of humanity where um, those folks stepped up and guarded um, this Black barbershop because they thought it was that important to community. It was just a a great thing to see.
0: I I know that you, uh, Greg and Houston, know each other. You you go to Timberwolves (laughs) games together, at the very least. Um, um, Houston, do you know that that Greg's family history with that? And that his father's own shop was under threat when Greg was a kid?
1: Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. It felt I didn't live through those times, but I can only imagine what what it felt like. But there was a similar, I, I would assume, um, just uncertainty, uh, uneasiness. I felt like I was living in a movie, yeah. and so I can only imagine like those movies that I saw from those times. It felt like that's what it would have felt like.
2: I, I know you're. I know you're waiting for me to jump in there, faith, but I, I... you
0: don't have to. I, I wanted to give you space if you wanted to.
2: Yeah, I probably do need the space on that one.
0: When when you have that kind of traumatizing event, right? In in your own community, in in something you've worked so hard to create. Um how do you how do you build back? How do you how do you summon the morale of of the people that you want to collect and make feel safe and confident? What what has been the the experience for you Houston over the last year and a half
1: yeah you know i um is the way to sum it up because that's what it was um, but i had come off the loss of my wife um in 2018 and so my faith was tested my my entire the, fa- the fabric of who i am as an individual whether i was going to go forward in life or just kind of just put her out and say You know, I try, right? Like, why me? Mm. Um, And it took everything in me to muster up the strength, and in a process, a deep healing process, and it's still a process, right? You'll never fully get there. Um, But what what helped get me through that was this desire to honor her through the conversations that she and I had about the life that we wanted to live. And so, in my work in community, specifically, she had told me, you know, as a Black woman, I can't stay in Minnesota. And Camden Town was a response before we just up and left. Let's try to create the reality that we want to live in. So though it was like, again, this trauma, I really channeled the idea of protecting this thing that we were making huge progress and bringing forth that she would have loved to hang out in and be in and tell stories about. Mm we almost left this place right and so that is that is how i summon the energy um because there were times where it's just like the community was in disagreement about which which is the right way to go right people had varying tactics um, we were in the midst of a political election that was, you know, I, we all we don't have to talk about that, but there was just so much going on that just at any moment you feel like enough, I'm done. I'm out. I'm tapped out. Yeah. Um, but I just channeled honestly um, her memory, her energy and the fact that, you know, where would I be if um, the folks in Mississippi where I'm from would have given up because I could only imagine what they were going through.
2: You know, you know what I find? So um incredibly interesting about Camden town and and what Houston is doing. And he said it earlier when he said, you know, black culture is American culture is when you visit um, him and any one of his businesses, whether it be the barbershop. And I know we'll talk about um, the get down coffee shop and all the other stuff that he's he's involved in. But it's such a multicultural mix of people who come through and feel at home and can celebrate um, this culture, which is such an integral part of the American fabric, whether it be the music or the fashion or or just the way that, you know, you know, black people do what they do, you know, the food, whatever it is. Um, But the fact that everybody can appreciate it and feel comfortable, like there's such a aspirational Thing, which is why U.S. Bank is so, you know, proud to be involved with Houston because I think he has a vision for not only these, you know, um, these couple of square blocks that are currently, you know, what he, he's involved in, but the vision is so much broader than that. And I think it's a blueprint for other communities that says, how do we, you know, how do we, how do we come together? How do we not sort of pull each other left and right so often, but how do we go forward? And Mm -hmm. I just really appreciate, and I think that, you know, for U.S. Bank to be involved in sort of this, you know, there are two really critical pieces of what I think is a new legacy that's being created by people like Houston. There's the economics piece and all the work that we're doing under the access commitment to ensure that people like him have access to capital and all that. But the part that is so vitally important that doesn't get talked about enough that I love how he's thinking about it is the cultural piece. And it takes both of those two components to actually create a new legacy um, where we've got, you know, young people who um, who love and, and and feel valued and, you know, understand the importance of um, education and understand the importance of leaving their community better than they found it. And so I just want to, you know, take this opportunity to celebrate Houston and because I think he's he's tapped into something that. I think has real ramifications for other communities across this country.
0: I see on I see on on some of the uh, of your merch the BE which which stands for Black Excellence, um, mm-hmm. and and I think that really like codifies what what Greg is saying when it comes to the cultural part of it. What what does that mean to you that a a young person a a kid. Maybe walks into the barbershop with his or her dad and and sees sees people wearing stuff that says black excellence.
1: Um, what does it mean? That's a, that's a, that's such a great question. It's multifaceted. The, the reason why I have started the whole black excellence brand and just put it on a t-shirt is because I felt like the conversations that were happening in the barbershop and the conversations that were happening, Um, around the treatment of black men and black culture, the conversations that were happening in North Minneapolis about between elders and young folks about how to go forward, right? Activism versus economics. And I'm like, we need to agree on one thing. And that is that black is excellent, that we come from that, that's who we are. And once we can like coalesce around the idea of excellence, We can move in these different areas and accomplish our objectives but we don't have a central theme yet you know what do we tell our babies what do we what do we all just whether you're democrat republican christian non-christian gay straight black excellence like let's just start here this is the baseline from which we want to build you know and i say it's multifaceted because it is there's a whole lot of work to do but for me i'm just like i just wanted to level set myself and the whole community to say here's 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 the 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 perch from which we're going to launch black futurism we're going to agree that we're excellent and we're going to be excellent we're going to project excellence and we're going to expect excellence and then from there we'll decide what we all should be doing to accomplish those goals
2: and and here's where you know i think it's important Faith to talk about how business can, how large businesses and corporations can help Um, because in order to make that vision possible, like businesses have to understand that we have a role in creating these communities and it's not just through uh, philanthropy. And we actually brought our CEO, Andy Cesari, to Camden Town and to Houston's, um, to the barbershop and the whole um, facility that he's building over there. Oh gosh! And this is... I
0: hope your mom walked through at that point as well.
2: <laughs> she did. I don't think she was there that day. <laughs> no, she was there. Okay. It was some heavy construction equipment and lots of tarp, <laughs> and like like we had to really get Andy to like see the vision, you know, like yeah. But what was so cool about it, and we've talked about all along, is this is not about U.S. Bank investing in a business, or in some respects, even even in investing in an idea. It's actually an investment in people like we as, as businesses and corporations have to make people based investments. And, you know, when we see an entrepreneur and a businessman like Houston, who's got such a vision and who has such a clear headed way of thinking about um, what I describe as this new legacy for um, community, like, why wouldn't we um, why wouldn't we invest in him? Why wouldn't we? And 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 many other, you know, Houston whites—not to say Houston, there's many of you—but, you know, people who are, um, similarly inclined to think about a new legacy, for these communities. I think that's where corporations can make a difference: is to think about, you know, people who are leading organizations, people who are leading communities. Um, there are individuals in these communities who just need opportunity, who just need access to a U.S. bank. Um, and that Houston and I talk about that a lot. Like, how do we help, you know, the, the 10-year-old, 11-year-old Houston white right now who, who doesn't even envision themselves ever having a conversation with somebody at a U.S. bank or a business of that size? Like, how do we make that more accessible? That's what the access commitment is all about. Like, all of this stuff shouldn't be out of reach for people. And if we can create equity around one thing, it should be around opportunity. And so I... You know, I, I I just want to underscore that point for you know those who are listening that you know thinking about corporations if we can invest in people and invest in leaders, um, I think that's a different way of thinking about how we've placed investments in these communities um, previously.
0: How do you do that, Greg? Beyond 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 donations and loans and identifying someone as charismatic as a Houston White. Like what what should a corporation be doing?
2: The, the the first thing, Faith, is you actually have to look inside your organization and make sure that your own policies and practices aren't getting in your way. Because typically that's what gets in the way of you having the 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 nimbleness and the elasticity that's required to do business oftentimes with Um, some of these entrepreneurs. So you actually have to make the systems change. You know, everybody talks about systemic this and systemic racism and systemic change. Yeah, but the systemic change has to start in your organization. It actually has to start with you sort of understanding what are the barriers that are getting in my own way. And we struggled with some of that early on and Houston will tell you, I mean, you know, early on it was, you know, when we first started talking, there were all these things that were sort of getting in our way from thinking about how this partnership would come together, and and we just kept oh. pushing. We just kept pushing on it and saying, "No, well, we're well. If that's the policy, then let's let's rethink the policy and make sure that that's not a barrier." Okay, if we need to have, can more- you
0: give me an example? Like, what was a what was a challenge?
2: I I think in in some of the ways where we help put together the capital stack and the investment um, stack, I, I I won't get into the specifics of the deal, but I think some of the ways that we put together some of these investment. Um, portfolios, they just, if this were a conversation three years ago, the answer would have probably been no, um, like right off the bat. And and I also think, and, and I say this with complete humility, um, also having somebody, you know, representation matters, I'll say it that way. And having, yeah. having a chief diversity officer who reports to the CEO, there's a different conversation that can happen. And so, if corporations want an example of why representation matters use this as a perfect example, because having a seat at the table allows me to say, look, here are the types of practices we have that are preventing us from actually making the change. And so, um, you know, that, that that's what this notion of DEI and diversity and equity and inclusion, it's not just about how we think about, you know, talent in our organization. It's actually how we transfer our values and the things that we value as a corporation into community. Um, And so it's all sort of coming together under this notion of the access commitment for us. But um, I hope Houston, you don't mind me sharing that example, but that, you know, it really played out in real life for us. And Andy saw it when we brought him to the actual space and he got to see where our investment was going and he got to meet Houston and, you know, they, they started scheduling golf time together and, Andy's going to mentor Houston, like our CEO is actually going to mentor, you know, this incredible entrepreneur in our organ in our community. And like, to me, like this is the kind of hands on, tangible kind of actions that big corporations have to actually act smaller. You know, we're big enough to make an impact, but small enough to care and react. And, you know, and, and to me, like this is a perfect example, which is why I'm so glad Um, he's able to join us today
1: yeah it's it's greg i you know first of all i came to you about this idea in 2019 you know culture culture plus capacity is the future you know we had a great conversation just the two of us man to man right this wasn't about a transaction this was about i see you i see how you move and in order for me to get done some of the things that i need to get done to be as impactful. I need an internal champion like a Greg Cunningham to push these ideas forward because, to your point, they just were too out there, too cavalier, right? Like, too, um, as, as 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 Jackie said <laughs> it's about how you can be at times, right? But that, but that's we 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 connected over this understanding that oh, I've, I've been watching this, brother, right? We've both been watching each other, but how can we move our community forward? You know, and culture plus capacity, I believe is the business model of the future. It's it's how Dr. Dre and Jimmy Iovine together created a $2 billion speaker company, right? That was sold to Apple, but they were both very important to bringing that business to scale, that kind of scale, You know, I mean, we can go on and on about the different relationships, but LeBron James and Nike is an example of culture plus capacity. You know, it's just been really hard, I think, for corporations to understand the value of the black entrepreneur, not the value of the black famous person or the value of the black athlete, you know, but the value of someone who's literally gotten it out the mud and proven at the granular level. That there is a market for what they're trying to do, but you need an internal champion to really push these ideas far enough up the food chain.
0: Houston, when you say culture plus capacity, do you mean for capacity? Do you mean having broad appeal?
1: Uh, is that what I, that means? To I, you? I mean having the rocket fuel to bring a vision to life. So, for instance, if if I'm talking about building a community like Camden Town, a place of black like joy, excellence, and vibrance in the state of Minnesota, which is uh, the statistics say the worst place in America for Black folks to live. And those are facts. The reality is in order to do that, North Minneapolis, where I am, has had about $13 million of investment, $15 million of investment, like like actual market investment in, in construction projects. Over the same period, there was over a billion dollars spent just three miles away in the North loop. Now, yes, the community has struggles, but when you, when you have that chasm of investment, you know, you you see why certain communities have a lag. If black boys and girls don't have the ability to work for someone that looks like them, understands them, understands their struggles, George Floyd, for instance, if he would have come into my shop, and I've had many men come into my shop having rough days or handing me a fake Twenty dollar bill. I would have walked them outside and said, "Bro, not today. Uh, you should go home and sleep it off. Not call the cops." But these are the kinds of cultural spe- specific investments and understandings that says like, black is good business. It's not just the right thing to do. You know, the most hmm. the most influential of all of global culture comes right out of black culture. I mean, kids are doing graffiti in Tokyo anime, all this stuff is just right out of creative kids from black and brown communities that if the right corporate leaders understood that the communities of the future are going to be disproportionately black and brown, especially in the state of Minnesota, that is a a, a good bet to help build up your future workforce, right? The folks that you want to recruit here that probably come from historically well-to-do Black communities are going to come to Minnesota and say, well, I don't have those kind of cultural spaces that existed where I'm from. So I'm going to just have to go back to where I'm from. Right now you lose, um, a potential awesome workforce. So, but these things are important to the bottom line of a corporation and not just the morality of it.
0: Campton town is the part of Minneapolis where you make your home and have grown mm-hmm. your vision, mm-hmm. right? Why? What made you start there? What is your dream for it?
1: Yeah, that's a that's a great question. So, Weber Camden, um, like New York City, used to be made up of five neighborhoods. Just it used to be called Camden. This was in the eighties. So, Shingle Creek, Levelhand, and Victory Firewell neighborhood. All of these were all a part of. One big old upper north side They that that it was called. North side is basically divided in two wards, four and five. And so ward four is the near nor, upper north side. And they broke off because of the way the city funded the neighborhood orgs, right? Every, every small section needed to do its own thing. And so when I was a kid, I used to ride up to the upper north side because it was beautiful. Um, the Grand Rounds, that is that scenic route that connects the whole city. Um, it starts right at my barbershop. And so, mm-hmm. as a kid, I lived in a little bit of a rougher southern part of North Minneapolis. And I used to ride my bike up here just for a, a moment to breathe, to dream. The houses were beautiful. Like it was a master plan after the, the war where soldiers from the GI Bill could build their houses and establish their families. And so, I've always just loved this part of North Minneapolis. And when i was about 20 years old i bought my first house in in camden and there was a brick building that used to have a coffee shop that i loved couldn't afford it but it's the it's the building that now i own um many years later and i'm 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 in it's, its the epicenter of, of camden town and i think for me it was just my personal affinity the air is different up here <laughs> um it, it's a place that I think has the type of infrastructure um, that with a few of the right uh, businesses and starting to recruit the right homeowners could be just this place that felt like the center of of a certain energy, a certain culture, right? You're in New York, you get it. Like, it's just something that you can't, you, you have to, you can't cut it with a knife. The vibe is so thick and that's what's been missing in community development. Like I used to build houses. It's not about, the buildings it's about the intent and the energy you put in the buildings the music the right like how people are just showing up just being can be themselves um and for me like that's the vibe and the energy and the hope of Camden town it becomes a place that people from all over the city want to come and visit because it's just dripping with with culture it's just it's just, it's just this this amazing feeling that you just like I just love being up there and like when i was a boy when i used to ride my bike up here it was just a different feel in the air and so um i figured you know if we could just bring some 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 black excellence and sprinkle that sauce on this area mm-hmm. um it would be the epicenter of culture i think in the state of minnesota and i, I think we're on 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 the way there
0: i got to tell you just hearing that your that your cafe get get down coffee has like a morning happy hour as much as i love oh my, my neighborhood in new york city I'm telling you, no one is dancing until they get their coffee. But, (laughs) but when you talk about the joy of your community and the fact that there is music playing and people talking before they're caffeinated, like it's, (laughs) it, it, it sounds like your vision and what it is manifesting is an experience is, is in kind of infectious community energy.
1: Oh, absolutely. Morning time, happy hour. I'm, I'm a and not to call it any any particular coffee companies they're all doing good stuff but what i would always see is is people are like kind of in a in a sleep state like in a coffee line right and i'm like well uh, what if there was like biggie smalls playing on the radio you know what if what if what if greg called me or called you or said, let's meet at the get down for coffee in the morning instead of um, let's meet after work, right? Like, so we go and we get charged and we plug into that energy. And then when we're headed off to work at 930, when we're going to go into the office, we're up, we're hyped, we're excited. Um, And I'm a guy that's all about trying to create difference in business. I mean, that's kind of my superpower, like figure out where the gaps are um, and then differentiate you know, because you can get coffee anywhere, um, but you really come here for the energy and the vibe and, you know, that's our our position of strength.
0: So I want to know, when you get support from a place like your collaboration with Target, right, a huge company, y- mm-hmm. you were asked what's next with that relationship and you said the thing for me is to get it right and not just think about the transactional What does that mean you hold on to when you're making sure your vision stays clear, even as you're getting, you know, meaningful financial support?
1: Well, I I hold on to my currency, right, which is which is my lived experience. Um, It is my actual feasibility study that's happened over a 10 year plus period. In the various verticals that I have actual data to show that there's a market for it and a track record that I've built up without the corporation. Right, I've been in Forbes twice without somebody calling and saying, you know, make this happen. Whatever happened, I mean, you know how you get buzzing and buzzing and buzzing and people reach out. But for me, for me, like it's it's really about making sure I protect. the essence of what is a real story, right? And not let like a corporate uh, PR department or or chop it chop it up such that it no longer really resonates with people, because that is what's going to make the difference. I can't help help Target or US Bank with what they're already crushing it in, but what I can do is add some value and some perspective to maybe a segment that is underserved or an approach that not about a vouching for the corporation because we're rocking together. Right. And there's a value in that, in that cultural currency. Um, and folks are fiercely loyal when they feel like this corporation's intent is pure and it's real.
2: Um, Faith, we did a black wealth study, as you know, um, here at U S bank over the last year, we've been sort of studying the attitudes of um, affluent um, black consumers and their attitudes towards wealth management and wealth advice, and one of the things that they talked about was, um, was this notion of representing the community, and how you know even those who may be affluent, they they don't come seeking advice only for their own personal benefit, but they understand that they represent the community, and I think what yeah. Houston, what you're saying is so important because what you're actually protecting is, and you said it way better than I'm, I'm about to, is you're protecting both the culture and the community, right? Like it's, you are the keeper of, you know, this legacy and this culture and you represent so much more than just yourself. You know, there are people who are entrusting you, you know, and, and, and this is something that, you know, many black professionals face and talk about often is this, um, is this unseen burden of, your success is not just your own. It's actually the communities as well. It's when you achieved any level of success, it's not, I, I made it the community is like we made it. No doubt. Like we've achieved success. And so you, you feel this sense of responsibility to continue to be successful and role model it because the, the history and whether accurately or not, the feeling is that if, if you don't succeed, then no one, el- no one else like you is going to get the opportunity again like uh, a US bank is not going to give the next Greg Cunningham the opportunity if he doesn't succeed where um, mm-hmm. Houston White's not going to get the opportunity with Target if this doesn't work there's not going to be another Houston White person that gets I'm not saying that's true I'm saying that that is the perception based on the history that we all know um, that the, the stamina and the the real commitment to the culture hasn't always been consistent and been there um from from the large corporations and i think that's part of what has to be different this time is we actually have to have real intentionality we have to have stamina around making sure that we invest for the long term and then ultimately there's going to be some accountability around you know not only are we you know, making these investments, but we're actually driving towards real outcomes in that the things that we're investing in actually are helping to, helping to change communities.
0: And, and when you're changing communities and, and when the good work of sort of having money flood an area in, in, in a good way occurs, we all know that there can also be gentrification and, and almost too much outside influence, right? And the heart of investing in Minneapolis is growing what's there and helping it flourish. How do you how do you keep what makes the community special while not compromising it?
2: You know, I you know, it goes back to a little bit of what I said before is you actually have to start by listening to the community. You know, one of the things we stood up here faith is is now being branded as an initiative that we're partnered with the African American Leadership Forum. Um, It's called United by Black, Powered by All. And the Powered by All part of it, I think is the even more powerful part of this initiative. It used to be called the Alliance of Alliances, and I think we've talked about it on the show before. But it's a partnership between community organizations, government, business. But the key to it is it's black-centered design. It The priorities and the things that the community want has to come from leaders in the community, which is why what I said earlier, this notion of investing in people is so important. Where we're so used to investing in organizations, you actually have to invest in people who understand the importance of black center design and that the, the, the issues and the, and the solves and the solutions actually have to come from people in the community and businesses has to stand behind them and support it. Not out front. Business has to believe in these individuals who are doing the work Mm. every day, boots on the ground, people like Houston White and others who are leading organizations that are doing the work, that's creating jobs, that's creating black excellence. And business has to believe in it enough to stand behind these people and the organizations that they represent. I think that's what's different this time. So it's this notion of listening. Businesses have to learn from these, um, these leaders who understand their communities before they take any action.
0: Houston, have you had an experience where you've had to really kind of push or push back against a, a, a big business that has the best intentions, but where you have to be like, no, no, I, I got to tell you, this is the way it needs to be done. Have you had that experience?
1: Oh, of course. I mean, I, I've gotten up from tables, negotiating tables and, and walked out. Um, Did you flip
0: the table first? <laughs>
2: nope. no. Nope.
0: You're too, you're too cool yeah. for that.
2: But I, I have, um, he bought the building. He bought the building <laughs> after he left. <laughs> <laughs> to me, this idea of like <laughs> cultural
1: currency, like understanding, like you got to hold the line. I'm, I'm big on that. Like I know my worth. I know what I bring. Um, and also, um, just to go back for a second. This um, concept of how I how I address you know the elephant in the room around folks trying to co-opt or gentrify an area. Um, my my business muse is Prince, and 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 I, I'm not a singer. I can't sing, so that's not what I'm saying. But here's a here's a here's a biracial kid from the state of Minnesota who was raised Northside that everybody in minnesota mm. claims him as their own and no one thinks that they're co-opting and so what i've tried to do as a black man in one of the whitest states in america is is be uniquely myself but realize that i am and can be for all because black culture is american culture and what i stand firm on is black leadership you know and the fact that these ideas that emanate from community and that's why i always will leave with the barbershop because it's non-negotiable, right? Even if someone outside the community tried, they would fail at it because without living it, without really being connected to it in a, in a true way, you would be seen as an evil gentrifier. And that would be bad for whomever's trying to come in. So as, as, as much as Camden Town is a place in Minnesota, it is an idea for all over America. And I think whether it's a barbershop that leads part of some of those developments or not, I would always kind of have a nod um, to what the barbershop represents because then people kind of got a respect. And then it just is a celebration, you know, everybody's welcome.
0: In, in spring of 2020, more than 40% of black owned small businesses closed. And we've had a chance to talk to some people who are really attuned to this moment in time in black entrepreneurship. What What was that time like for you? And why do you think this severe drop affected the Black community at, you know, such higher rates than others?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, there's three forms of capital. Um, You know, social capital, knowledge capital, and literal capital. And a lot of the relationships to, to, to financial institutions weren't there. Some of the knowledge capital around, like, Generational knowledge about how to how to navigate challenging times in in different economies, which there have been several, and and then just the reality of needing to survive, right? Like, and there there are segments of the, the society who had those things, and it's just like somebody pulls you over and say, "Look, here's how you navigate that," and or here, here's here's a bridge, right? Like, and that I don't think has been was not as readily available for black. Business owners, as for some of our other counterparts, and that's a huge part of it. Um, and, and that's why it's so important to get this time right. Like, and it's bigger than just money, there is a lot of social capital, piece and knowledge capital that has to um wrap around this discussion as well. Because you know, I could give my you know nephew five dollars and he's just gonna go spend it all today. <laughs> yeah. and so, you know, it's important to equip entrepreneurs with the knowledge to actually sustain.
0: We have talked about that a lot, Greg. Yeah. And and is it is is it our conversations that make me feel so hopeful that there's an that there's an increase increasing awareness of the need for financial literacy, literacy or, or is this a real thing that's happening everywhere and not just the conversations I hear about <laughs> through us bank and the people we meet? Yeah,
2: here? I, I don't even know that it's, I think, yeah. And there's a lot of talk about financial literacy. I think what we need is historical literacy <laughs> faith. Like I, you yeah. know, honestly, yeah. I think, you know, and I'll just, just to steal a line from, um, the, the Color of Money, which is a powerful read. If if um, the listeners haven't read it, I recommend, highly recommend that book. And um, one of my favorite um, lines from that book is, you know, what we need is truth and reconciliation. And truth and reconciliation are sequential. And, you know, if you mm-hmm. really want to know why so many black businesses fail, all you have to do is understand the history of why these businesses have been shut out from the credit system, why they've been shut out from, um, you know, having access to the networks that are required. Businesses done on relationships, um, you know, in addition to you know credit and capital, but they're done on relationships, and you know, so often these businesses are shut out from the systems and the formal and informal networks that allow them to grow their businesses. They're not on the, they're not a part of the country clubs unless they're unless we create them like Houston has done. You know they're not a part of the dinner parties and the happy hours they're not never been invited into those spaces and places where you know people have been able to grow and prosper and and sustain their business and so we have to change all of those things and we have to understand the history of where we've come from and you know there is a really powerful um piece of work that's done in the financial services industry called special purpose credit programs where you know, many banks have sort of loosened their credit policies, and you know, created more flexible terms um, to grant um, businesses greater opportunities and access to credit. And it's something that I think is a really important part of any go-forward um, plans for the financial industry as a whole. There's lots of talk amongst regulators and others to to really double down on this notion. And I think these are the kinds of policy and practice. Um, driven things, um, faith that we have to do, you know, the rhetoric is all right, but it it only comes to fruition if we change the policies and practices and how we behave um, as an industry and as organizations. And these are the kinds of things at the bank um, that we are looking really hard at implementing to make sure that our that our behavior is actually fully aligned with the outcomes that we want to see. And as you know, we're going to be working with, and we are working with the urban institute to measure all of our investments so we can hold ourselves accountable we're going to make those outcomes public so the public can hold us accountable um, to the outcomes um, that are that will come as a result of the investments we're making uh,
0: dare i say it's working That there's this wonderful little nugget i have for you which i'm sure you're aware of per bloomberg the number of black business owners operating today has surpassed pre-pandemic numbers and it's growing faster than any other racial group so it's uh, it's up 38% from pre-covid levels and you know the buy black movement has been a huge boon among other things what what other factors do you think are are playing into this rise
2: you know i think some of it's by necessity and some of it is you know without other options faith you're going to do what is required and i think there is a bit of self-determination and pride in ownership movement that's happening in the black community that I think is so important. And I think it's going to have real ramifications for big companies like ours and how we think about talent and, um, and people are making different choices in their life. And it's not just in the black community, but you think about the choices that women are making now about careers and how they want to manage their careers and, Many of them don't want to work for, you know, large corporations. They would rather make some different choices. And I think the black community in particular has oftentimes, you know, determined that, you know, you think about, you started this conversation by asking our favorite Jay-Z lyric, and you think about the whole culture of hip hop and why it was created. It was because the music industry thought this, this noise that was coming out of these black communities was not music. And Mm -hmm. like, they weren't going to give like, we the community created a whole genre, a whole culture, starting with a genre of music. Um and you can take that all the way back if you trace the history. That's what jazz is, and that's what jazz was. And so there's a there's a legacy yeah. here. And you know, and I think this is the new legacy for us, you know, is this notion of entrepreneurship and self-determination and ownership. And I think there's a real important role for big companies and banks in particular to play. And catalyzing that.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. I I, um, I can't tell you the number of young men and women who have reached out to me. And at a point I, I, I started to feel bad because I'm like, there's no way. I mean, I've, I've, this week alone, it's like 100 youngsters like, can you mentor me? Can you, can I, can I. Can oh, wow. Um, and they all want to be independent. They all have an idea, mm-hmm. and here's this great opportunity. I think, and what I'm trying to do is build Hitzfield. and that is that as 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 well intended as several entrepreneurs are. That's needs Motown. To know that's G. Motown
2: for those who may not be playing along at home.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Greg. Yeah.
2: And and I and I
1: thank you for that. I'm a translator, too. I'm here to translate.
0: It's like like closed captioning for for this (laughs) middle-aged white lady. Thank you.
1: (laughs) Hitsville, USA, I call it the best black talent incubator in the history of America. Because in a little house in Detroit, Barry Gordy created the sound of America. Right. Like and we have in this moment, there were all of these talented artists who could all sing or dance or do a thing, but they needed to go through a process. They had to have a trusted guide to get them from talent to professional to star and beyond. Right. like, And that's where I see myself is 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 not that I'm ever going to put myself in, the, in, in, in in Barry Gordy's category, but I'm with you. On what you want to do, but there's a process that you gotta go through. There are dues that we all have to pay. And there's a reality, like what Barry Gordy did, your idea had to go through a gauntlet of 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 feedback. And if everybody wasn't aligned, it didn't make it onto record. And so as 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 much as we have this feverish energy, it's also important for us to corral it. Perf- and bring it to mass market so we can't succeed at the next Houston White and beyond doesn't get turned down because we don't have um, huge instances of failure of these new businesses that are coming to fruition.
0: And we've talked about that with access commitment, Greg, that giving giving people who are, are burgeoning a, a a a really safe place to 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 fail wonderfully, right, on the way up and and be unburdened by that feeling that you have educated me about that some black people have, which is I only get one shot. Like if I, if I screw this up, I'm not screwing it up just for me. I'm screwing it up for everybody who's watching me.
2: You know, that, that is such a, that, that's the spirit of America is this notion of innovation and, and trying and failing fast that, that is ultimately, I think at the heart of the American spirit. And, you know, that's the promise that we've made to ourselves is that we will create um, an environment, a culture where everybody has an opportunity to, to fail and, and succeed accordingly. And I think, you know, it, it's so um, incredibly uh, powerful that, you know, the bank has, through our efforts, been able to catalyze, you know, so many small business owners who are, you know, creating jobs. And we have an initiative that, um, you know, we're launching for entrepreneurships. And it's going it's, to, it's right now, it's called One More Job. And we've talked about this so many times, Faith. That ninety-eight percent of black-owned businesses in this country are sole proprietorships. And you know, if we can help mm-hmm. those businesses create one more job, the economic impact to our company is, to our country is every American benefits from that. Like every American yeah. can benefit from, you know, that sort of vitality that happens. And so we do have to. And you know, as we think about investments and some of these programs I've talked about, there are going to be instances where they don't work out and they're not going to be successful, but we're going to have enough of the Houston Whites and we're going to have enough of those successes that, you know, we're able to move this forward and we're able to have the stamina and the stomach um, and stick-to-itiveness to make sure that um, that we stay in it for the long term and we stay in it long enough to see the outcomes that we all want to see.
0: You mentioned this earlier Greg. Access commitment is is the kind of thing a major bank wouldn't have touched years ago. Perhaps wouldn't have even have conceived of, right? And it's not only here, it's working. And and Houston, your dream of Camden Town is not just a dream and your business has grown drastically. How did y'all manage to keep focused during times when people couldn't see the vision that you saw so clearly.
2: The vision was important. I'll tell you um, a really quick story, um, Faith. Um, The way I met Houston, um, I think, is an important context. We met, we were both invited to a radio program. I was on an earlier segment. He was on a later segment. I was on with two other people. And one of the people who was supposed to join the segment with me was running late and so the producer of the show asked Houston if he would join our segment of the program. And so we were on this program, we met each other and he was talking about the work that he was doing in this grand vision he had for Camden town, you know, in complete transparency faith. I actually didn't even have the mindset to really clearly see his vision at the time. And so it took us a little while for us to come together, but the magical moment, um, was when he had sort of, um, and I'll say it in a nice way, he had sort of challenged me, you know, to sort of live up to all of the things that I was talking about, you know, being in the corporation and the change I wanted to see and the commitments that I was making. And, you know, it was it took a little bit of a challenge for me to sort of look in the mirror and say, am I truly living what I'm talking about? And we got together and we had dinner and he shared this vision of, of what he wanted. And in in that moment, you know, I did see him and I did see, you know, I did see my dad who was a small business owner whose small business was burned during the riots in 68. And like I saw my culture and I saw this vision that I had for what our communities can be and what our communities must be um, for us to live the promise of America more broadly, not to get too uh, Pollyanna about it. But I, but I, but I think it's achievable, and I don't have any reason other than to be optimistic because I think there are many Houston whites all across this country not doing the same thing but have a similar drive and a similar vision. I think we have to see them, and I think we have to invest in them.
1: Thank you for seeing me, right? Like, it, it matters. Um, it, the village approach, you know, I've, um, I, I've, I've, I've come up under some, some phenomenal people Um, And I've always thought of Greg as a phenomenal leader, right? When we didn't even know each other, you see folks and you just, there's something about that person that that there's just a vibe you pick up. And for me, as much as I wanted him to hear me, I wanted him to, I wanted to also get to know him, right? So I can learn on this journey, you're going to need insight. Uh, And I'm from the South and I'm just used to that, you know, this hierarchy of information and that is valuable to me, you know? Um, and so I appreciate that because um, it takes internal champions to get this work pushed. But, you know, it, when we talk about Camden Town, I, you know, the the, the the I was writing the other night and I and when I think because I was trying to frame this up for someone um, about the importance and the urgency. And what I put on the page is imagine if Prince would have bought a block in North Minneapolis and built Paisley Park. Just just that one thing. Now I understand why he went to Chan because he's has a million people tugging on him and he's a creative and he needs space to go create. So I don't hold that against him. But every generation is supposed to learn from the prior one and 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 hopefully iterate and change just a bit. And when I was 28, I was a very successful home builder and I was away from my community and all I did was just give donations and sponsor the basketball team you know these low-level good feeling moments and and those are important too but I wasn't proximate to my community and the reality is I needed to be plugged in just for my own tribal needs as much as as my community needed me you know and my success and my points of view so for me that the the, the the idea of Town is really like reestablishing this norm of Black people of various backgrounds and lived experiences wanting to live together. That's the way the schools improve because the schools are funded by the tax base. A busy street is a safe street. So when you have more people congregated, there's less room for crime. When we talk about the numbers of Black people who are employed by black owned businesses it's in the 70 80%. So if we have more viable scaled black enterprises imagine the kind of effect that that could have on main street. Um, and so for me Camden in in a nutshell is just that. It's just it's a people based placemaking strategy and the people that I'm most focused on is that of of black folks who are in Minnesota who all need each other. And also, it's a place that folks from all different backgrounds and races and lived experiences can come and live and celebrate and hopefully just be comfortable with the fact that Camden Town always has to be Black-led um, and always has to ooze with that kind of culture. And if you come here, you just have to want to be a part of that and to support that. And to me, that that's a way forward in America, in these urban cities that normally just get hostily taken over and become something totally different. And so that for me is a model of Camden Town. It's as personal as it is <laughs> inspirational. I need it.
0: Houston, uh, you know, you are really you're the legacy of what you've created is it does such honor to your wonderful late wife. It 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 just sounds like you're you're helping take the light she was and just illuminating that community. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you for that. I really
0: appreciate that. Thanks so much for listening to Real Good by U.S. Bank. If you like what you heard, listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week.